Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to The Readings Podcast. My name is Fiona Hardy, and I'm here talk to, talking today to Chris Hammer, author of Silver, published by Alan and Unwin. Now, I'm here also with my colleague, Deborah Crabtree. Hi. Hi, all. Hi, Chris. Hi, Fiona. Um, so, we'd like to ask you to begin with just telling us a little bit about the, um, the book, maybe just a brief elevator pitch or plot summary, as it were. Okay. So, Silver is a follow-on book from my book, Scrublands. So it's not a sequel in the sense that you would have to have read Scrublands to have read Silver. You know, it's standalone, but that does have the same main characters or characters. The main character, the protagonist, is Martin Skarsden, a rather damaged journalist. The book's not told uh, in the first person, but it's pretty close to it in that Martin is in every scene, you can read what he's thinking, but only have his impressions of what other people might be thinking. So here's a setup. In Scrublands, Martin was an outsider. He went to a drought-stricken town out in the Australian interior to do an anniversary story on a murder there. And his motivation was absolutely to find to, to do the story. Um, and the story changed while he was there, but that was his motivation. This is different. In Silver, it's set on the coast, thinks somewhere up the north coast of New South Wales, somewhere around Byron Bay, in a town called Port Silver. Again, a fictional town, not a fictionalised version of a real town. He's going there because his partner, the young woman he met, in Scrublands, Mandalay Blonde has shifted there. She's inherited a, a rambling old house, dilapidated house on the on the cliffs over this town, Port Silver. But this is different because Port Silver just happens to be Martin's old hometown, where he grew up, where he fled from as soon as he could when he finished school, because of the traumatic events that had befallen um, him and his family when he was a child. So here he's not the complete outsider. There are people there who still know him and he's haunted by what happened to his family. He arrives in the town. Uh, Mandalay's been there for some time. He gets to the apartment that she's renting while she fixes up the old house. And there on the floor, murdered, is his old best friend Jasper Spate from his high school days. Hasn't seen him for more than 20 years. And sitting not far away is Mandalay in shock, but with blood on her hands. And she, of course, immediately becomes the chief suspect for the police. So Martin doesn't believe that for a moment. So he wants to find out who really killed his old best friend. So his motivation is different. His motivation isn't just a story. But inevitably, as he digs into the town and uncovers more and more of its unsavoury secrets... He once again is motivated. The journalist kicks in and he wants to write the story. He wants to expose all this wrongdoing. Um, so just the last thing I'd say is in Scrublands, it started off when I was writing it very much as a crime story. But by the end, it also had a personal story of Martin. There was this kind of um, almost a redemption story, if you like, um, but he'd been on an emotional journey. And so the Martin Skarsden at the end of Scrublands is a different man than Martin Skarsden at the beginning of the book. Silver is a bit the same because he has to confront 
what happened to him and his family uh, when he was a kid, he ends up going on an emotional journey. So there's kind of two things happening. There's this crime story with all this criminality, but there's also the personal story. See, I actually came in just with Silver. I hadn't been able to read Scrublands beforehand. I'd been a bit of fisticuffs about the reading copies of Scrublands when it came out around the shop. So not all of us got to read it. Um, but I know that Deb read Scrublands before she read Silver. But I'm actually interested to know how, because I, I did think it worked really well on its own, even though I knew that Scrublands was beforehand. Um, I, I wonder how you did go about writing it as a standalone that could also work as a sequel because yeah I think we both got a lot out of it in our separate readings of it but um yeah what, what kind of what kind of thoughts did you have and how did you work on it to make it clear what was going on to people who were coming to this world for the first time yeah that's a bit tricky I mean it's kind of typical with, with crime writing that you'll have a one protagonist who who goes through a number of books and usually it's possible to read them out of order you know, someone like Michael Rowbotham, who's written, you know, Joe Lachlan's series, I think he's got like nine books. And I've read some of those and out of order hasn't mattered. So there's a bit of a there's a bit of a balance there. But as you're writing, you have to keep in mind almost like there's two different people reading the book. The ones like yourself who are coming to it cold and the others who have scrublands. So there's certain bits, of course, that are going to affect the character's thinking in this book, Silver, uh, because of what happened in Scrubland. So you need to explain it, but explain it briefly enough that you don't, you're not going over too much old ground with the people of Red Scrublands. So, yeah, you just have to be conscious, I think, while you're writing. So I wondered while I was reading this, having read Scrublands, um, did you did you already have this book in mind while you were writing Scrublands or was this did it come later like did you have the idea for this already and and or was it something later because it seemed to flow having read the two it seemed to flow quite naturally from that and i felt like there was almost some sort of foreshadowing of some of the things in it in silver that were in scrublands as well so i'm just wondering how how that process was. yeah well two points the first one is with Scrublands, I was very much learning on the job. So I had this idea I'd write a, a kind of a three-part like trilogy with an overarching sort of plot. And you can't do it in a crime book. It makes no sense. The readers want to know who did it or why they did it, that sort of thing. But because of that, I did have a few ideas floating around. And by the time I finished Scrublands, yes, I had this, the seed of an idea, put it that way. And so in one of the final scenes of Scrublands, now without giving too much away, Martin is standing on this bridge over a dry riverbed and he sheds a tear and it says it's the first time he's cried since he's eight years old. And that kind of begs the question, <laughs> what happened when he was eight years old? And that's what you find out in Silver. So that, and already as I was writing Silver, I was getting a few seeds of ideas for the next book. But I'm not – but that's all it is, a seed of an idea. Um, so Scrublands was quite successful. Like it was a, a good, good bestseller and it had a lot of talk and it's had really great reviews and stuff. I was wondering like at what point did you realise that you'd written something that was – like what time did – when did you realise you got on the, the roller coaster, the fast roller coaster for this ride? Look, I for, – for quite a few months there it just seemed a bit unbelievable. I mean, I'd written two non-fiction books, uh, 
that, you know, in the words of Paul Keating, had taken me from nowhere to obscurity. Yeah, they were well received, but they, but they didn't sell anything. So when I was writing Scrublands in my part time, I was doing it almost like a hobby. I thought, oh, this is pretty good. Someone will publish it, but I didn't expect that it would be a bestseller or any of that. The first intimation, of course, was when I got the book deal and then I'd start, you know, my brilliant agent, Grace Hyvett, started selling it internationally, you know, into the UK, into the US, into translation. So I kind of knew that that was happening, but there was another part of me thinking, how do they know? I'm not so sure about this. I'm not so sure that people will respond. And then a couple of weeks after publication, it, I mean, they did such a brilliant job at promotion. This doesn't happen by accident, but it was the best-selling fiction book in Australia. And that's when I went, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and I, st I still kind of sometimes find it a bit hard to believe. And I, I want to say something about, you know, the, the, they're both very big books. Like, big, Did you set out to write big books? Did it just kind of happen as you were writing the books or...? Very much that mm. it just happened while I was writing it. I was kind of conscious that, you know, there's this idea that publishers, particularly with a first book, are looking at somewhere around 90,000 words. Mm. So Scrublands is about 125 and Silver's about 140,000. So um, I like as a reader, I, I really like an immersive read. So possibly that, you know, what you read and what you like as a reader, of course, influences how you write as a writer. But on the other hand, I, I really don't think you, you should ever put in anything extraneous big, into a book. So it just, I, by the time I'd finished Silver and it was, it was 140,000 words, I, I really expected, you know, my publisher to come back and just say, look, it's too long, we need to cut, we need to cut, <laughs> yeah. we need to cut. And I was kind of like gobsmacked when they went, oh, no, it's good, it's good, it's great, it sustains. <laughs> and so like, well, okay. <laughs> um, this is probably a question you've had um, in Scrublands interviews as well, but I was just curious that like when you started writing Scrublands, were you, did you start with the idea? Did you start with the fact that he was a journalist? Was it your background that, you know, yeah, at what point kind of did you start with the book? So my books evolve very much. I don't, I don't kind of plot them out. Oh, I, I try and plot them out, but then I get a better idea. So they evolve and they evolve and they evolve to the point, you know, with Scrublands, because I think I was learning on the job, I threw out well over 100,000 words. Like really as I got better ideas and I rewrote the end, you know, like completely rewrote the end, last 40 or 50,000 words twice. I promised myself I wouldn't do that with silver, and yet I did. I threw out the last <laughs> thirty or forty thousand words and, and rewrote it because I got a better idea, a more kind of convincing conclusion. Um, the idea, Scrublands, I wrote over a number of years because I was, you know, had a full time job and and whatever. And so I get asked questions, what about this, what about that? And it's almost like I've got to deconstruct my own book, my own thinking about it. I think the initial seed uh, for Scrublands was the setting and I'd spent time out in that sort of drought-ravaged area and this idea of a journalist going uh, to do a so-called anniversary story 
you know, this is the sort of story, how is, how is such and such coping or what's happened a year on or 10 years on or whatever. So 9-11 is a typical sort of thing. Every time it ticks around, there's anniversary stories. And I did a couple of those as a journalist. There's one that actually I hadn't really remembered, uh, but an interviewer had found it. I went to Arche a year after the tsunami there and did a story for Dateline. But the one I was thinking probably more influenced my ideas, I did one in uh, East Texas where I went to this town uh, called Jasper where um, an African-American man had been dragged to death behind a pickup truck by white extremists. And I'd gone there to find out how the town was coping. It was a crime that completely shocked America. Um, not to do a story on the crime, they caught the perpetrators. There was no mystery about the crime. It was just this brutal, abhorrent killing. Um, but the story I did there was all about race. It was a racially segregated town. Um, and of course, that's not part of Scrublands at all. It's just that seed of the idea, the journalist going to do a story about a crime that everyone knows what happened and then discovering that, well, everyone's actually wrong. I'm I'm interested in that the way that you sort of said you, that you don't sort of plan and you don't because I'm sort of reading it reading the books and there's such multi strands of the book so many twists and turns and I wondered how you went about keeping those things sort of coming back to the, you know keeping track of all of those parts of the story and then sort of going back because they all they all seem to fall into place really well by the end and there's no strands left untouched and and so I was reading it going wow you must have really planned it out and, but but you didn't so how did you sort of keep track of all of those things in the writing process it kind of evolves so I, I have a kind of a loose plot but then I get better ideas characters start growing and you think oh this character could have done that this character could have done done that and a lot of writers I think particularly crime writers um, they're writing a lot of material in the background that isn't in the book like particularly timelines. So the book follows Martin, but I've got to know where all the other characters and what they were doing at the same time. Um, the, the, both books have these really lovely maps in the front, but they started as me just drawing a map just to make sure, because they're fictional towns, right? And they're made up towns, making sure that the, the kind of the geography of the layout of the towns didn't change between chapter two and chapter 25, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it is interesting. So you have this this idea with crime writers that there are the plotters and the pantsers and the plotters are the ones who plot everything out and then just, you know, write the book. So I think it's, it's James Elroy who, who, who writes these treatments before he writes his books and the treatments can be like 300, 400 pages long. It's like, you know, as long as, as long as the book. So by the time he gets to write the book, he knows exactly what he's writing. But then there's others who, the so-called pantsers who write by their seat of the pants, who start a book without really knowing where it's going. So Lee Child is famously one of those. Um, Michael Robotham is a bit like that too, and his plots are really intricate. His characters mm. are really nuanced. You would never, this is the thing, you, I can't tell when I'm reading other writers' books how they're working. I'm kind of, I'm not a complete pantser, but, I just, the books evolve because I keep getting better ideas. Um, but I do want to tie up all those multiple threads. I don't want to leave, you know, things hanging or unresolved or um, inconsistent. 
Yeah, I just, I did kind of, I had the same question. Deb and I always just, we, we write our questions separately and then we come together and we find we've just got the exact same questions. We're in the same wavelength. And I did, I had the same one where I was, I kind of imagine that you have this office that's like that image of like index cards stuck to all the walls and like red, red string everywhere to attach it all together. Um, We also talked about the fact we both had a question about the maps in the book because I actually originally read a um, PDF, advanced PDF that the publisher sent me, which didn't have the map in the front. Um, And so I had made my own internal map of the, like, so I didn't draw it obviously, but like I had an idea of what it was. And so when I got my physical copy and I opened it up and I saw the map, it was actually really reassuring to see that I actually pretty much, pretty much coincided with what I had in my head. And so I was quite impressed with how you created a, quite a, 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 such a great, um, I've forgotten all of my words suddenly. Um, like you, you did a really good job of kind of encapsulating the city, the, the, the town um, correctly and um, putting everything together. But yeah, I was wondering, yeah, I like, so you said, do you hand draw that? Did you actually do the, the finished map that's oh, in the book? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> they're, they're, I mean, they're beautiful. No, that's a really good uh, illustrator, lives in Melbourne, his name's Alex. Um, originally, I just, I thought, oh, I'll just include my very crude hand, um, drawn map, which is why it wasn't in the advanced copy yeah. you got. Um, and Jane Palfreyman, the publisher, said, oh, we should get a cartographer to do. And we did, but it it just came out rather flat because it was a cartographer. I said, no, let's get an illustrator. So mm. she's found, found um, Alex, who lives in Melbourne, but it only recently arrived in Australia from Slovenia. So all the examples of his illustrations were these little villages in the <coughs> excuse me, in the Balkans, you know, Dubrovnik and whatever. Mm. And so as he's drawing scrublands, I'm sending him photos. This is what an Australian pub looks like. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these are wheat silos. He's going, they're that big? I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're big. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, um, it was just something, yeah, I was really impressed with, I have to say. And um, what made you decide to include it in the book as well? Um, were you just... Uh, like I just, just thought it might add, add, add something. So I was just suggesting it to um, Jane and she thought it was a good idea. I kind of like the maps, you know, in fantasy books, (laughs) it's kind of compulsory to have a map. Um, Often in in crime it might be set somewhere like Los Angeles or New York or, you know, Sydney, Melbourne. So you don't really need a map, right? Mm -hmm. But these are fictional towns. I just thought it might add something. Um, But it that was almost as an afterthought when we got into that process. It wasn't right there from the start. Yeah. Um, and so it's not based on any town. You have completely made it up. You just borrowed things from other towns as well or? Yeah. So in Scrublands, those towns out on the plains tend to be quite spread out because land is cheap and, you know, there's no reason not to. So it's a very condensed town to help the plot. Port Silver is, again, the town constructed around the plot so the map kept changing as I was thinking as the plot kept changing oh this would be good if this was so far away from here and you know the lay of the land I had this this idea to, so there's bits though you can pick from different towns there's a beautiful town down the south coast of New South Wales called Bermagui which is it's a little bit little bit like that maybe um but no it's I mean, if you make up a story, why can't you make up a map? I also wanted to ask about, you know, you've had many, many years working as a journalist and, and um, you know, Martin is, Martin's a journalist. You've got sort of the, that background. And I just also just wanted to ask about 
how the journalism has it helped in writing the book how is it very different form of writing writing a novel to being a journalist or have you used those skills as a journalist in in sort of writing the novel i think having been a, a journalist is both a, a blessing and a curse it gives you some of the skills that are very valuable but then there's other things that really get in the way because it is such a totally different way of writing and thinking the the advantages it gives you is the discipline of writing and that you don't over romanticize the writing the writing process i mean so for example um you don't wait for inspiration as a journalist you know, imagine ringing up the editor. Oh, I don't think I'll file today. I'm not feeling inspired. <laughs> and and the, and the truth is, sometimes when you don't really, really don't feel like writing, they can be the days where you come up with a really good idea and it ends up flowing very well. So I think that kind of just the discipline of writing, also the knowledge that it's it's about the story and it's not about you. I think a lot of writers actually get hung up more on themselves and than the work they're doing. So that's the advantage. The disadvantage of, of journalism, I think, is um, so much of journalistic writing is kind of cliched, um, and that's not a bad thing in journalism because it's like a shorthand, it communicates ideas. So you've got you've to find a completely different voice, and there's plenty of, plenty of journalists who have made that transition, but others find it more difficult. Um, so what are you reading or watching at the moment? Anything good? Yeah, I, <clears throat> I haven't been watching much. Um, I've read a few few good books lately. Uh, Snake Island by Ben Hobson's mm. a, a really good book. Um, uh, Bodies of Men by Nigel Featherstone is a really uh, – so I have to read a lot of crime now because I'll be interviewing – so I'm – you were prepared for this question, weren't you? <laughs> I'm going to um, – so, for example, I'm going to interview Michael Connolly, the great American mm. crime writer who's coming to Australia, so I'm doing it in conversation. So, of course, I have to read his book. I mean, fortunately, I've, re I've read quite a few of his other books and every now and then I'll, I'll just have a little gap and I'll escape and I can re read some contemporary fiction. So, Bodies of Men was, was one like that. Um, uh, I, I really want to read Too Much Lip. Um, oh, yeah. You know, so so that'll be my next sort of non-crime book, I think. And I think my my question there, which did you read crime before? Was was that something that you enjoyed reading as a as a genre? Yeah, I did, but I wasn't I wasn't a crime tragic, so I didn't read crime exclusively. I had read some Michael Connolly. I really like the old, um, you know, Raymond Chandler, mm. Dashiell Hammett sort of hard-boiled detective things. Um, and I like very much Peter Temple. Uh, Peter was actually my writing teacher at university oh, back cool. in the 80s before he was published any fiction. Um, and so because I knew him and because he was a really great teacher, I read his books. And I think that was part of the reason I thought I might try writing crime fiction, that he had demonstrated that um, you can put a lot into a crime book, that it's not just... It's just not a Sudoku, you know. It's it, you know you can put a lot more about character and you know morality and and all the rest into it. So um, yeah, I, I do like crime, and since then I've been reading quite a bit of crime, um, and there's some you know really good stuff out 
there. I read uh, recently, you know, My Sister the Serial Killer. That, yeah, that's that a is, good one. That, that's a great read and, like, really entertaining but also kind of insightful. Mm. Yeah, well, on that note, um, thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. Uh, so you have been listening to Chris Hammer discuss his amazing new book, Silver. Silver is available from all reading stores, apart from the kids' ones, obviously. Uh, you can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast on our website, readings.com.au, where you'll also find news, reviews and interviews and information on our current book, music and DVD releases. You can even sign up to our newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Thanks so much for listening and thank you, Deb. Thank you, Fiona, and thank you, Chris. Oh, thanks so much. 